0: Hey there FOMO Sapiens. It is summer vacation time and so I'm taking a little break but good news I'm going to be sharing some amazing episodes and the theme of the episodes actually is the best of FOMO Sapiens female guests. So female FOMO Sapiens and I'm starting out with a bang with a huge success. A woman who is very well known has been written about everywhere for a good reason because she's prolific in terms of being an author in terms of just like having good ideas. She just kind of Thinks about things in a smart way and gives us really actionable tips and ideas to work with in our lives. Her name is Gretchen Rubin, and I was really excited to have her on the show. She's somebody who I've been following for a long time. And then I read her book, The Four Tendencies, and I was sort of like, wow, this is this is super insightful. And so I interviewed Gretchen, and it's been a really popular show. And I've, you know, just wanted to put it back out there for those of you who haven't heard it, or if you've heard it you should listen again, because I'll tell you something, what she says, I think is really helpful in figuring out how to sort of organize our lives and how to make better decisions. And so she is really a master of decision-making. And so you're going to love the show today. I hope you're having a wonderful vacation. I am having a very good one. I have to say a little downtime, never hurt anybody. Uh, So enjoy the show and let me know what you think. You can shoot me an email at let's connect at or you can find me on Twitter at pjmaginness or on Instagram at patrickjmaginness. All right, now onto the show.
1: FOMO. After like so much thinking and looking at patterns of behavior that it almost melted my brain, it took months of just like thinking all the time. I identify this pattern of behavior, which I call the four tendencies, which divides people into upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels, as you say, on how they respond to expectations. Because it turns out this is a very narrow aspect of your personality, but it's very significant because we can all decide to do something, but when do we actually follow through? Knowing a person's tendency uh, makes it a lot easier to set ourselves up for success. That's
0: Gretchen Rubin, the New York Times best-selling expert on happiness. I'm your host, Patrick McGuinness, and this is FOMO Sapiens. When the world's spinning out of control, it can be impossible to know what to do and what to miss out on. That's called FOMO, which is short for fear of missing out. How do I know? Because I coined the term, and I'm the world's first FOMologist. And this is a show where I ask entrepreneurial thinkers, people I call FOMO sapiens, how they live and work with conviction no matter what life throws at them. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome back, FOMO sapiens. If you caught the last two episodes, and I hope you did, then you know that finding a guest who can follow the great Jay Shetty is no small task. But I gotta tell you, I think I found the perfect person And that person is Gretchen Rubin. Now, you may know her from her smash books like The Happiness Project and The Four Tendencies, or you might know her from her podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin. But if you don't, then you're about to meet one of the smartest people walking around on the planet. Gretchen is, as we say in my home state of Maine, wicked smart, with degrees from Yale and Yale Law School. But beyond all those degrees, she's the best kind of smart of all. She's smart about how to live your life in a way that actually makes you happy. Easier said than done, I know, but Gretchen is widely recognized as a leading authority on the matter. And as you'll see shortly, there is good reason why she sold millions of books all over the world. She talks about how to live better in a way that isn't fluffy, it's practical, and it makes sense. And today, we're going to focus on a topic that is a personal challenge for me, and from what I hear from all of you, it's a personal challenge for many of you as well. It's how to uphold the commitments you make to yourself and to others, whether it's something like losing those 10 pounds after the holidays or working on that new business idea. If you struggle to get things done, or you feel like you spend all of your time crossing off somebody else's to-do list rather than your own, uh, I know how that feels, then you're going to get a lot out of today's show. Then stick around for the full moment of the show where I'm going to share my own take on what it takes to dedicate your time to fulfilling your goals, rather than taking care of other people's priorities. As you'll see in the interview, this is an area where I've struggled a lot, but I also have some hacks that I've developed that you're gonna like, and that I think you're gonna be able to use starting today. And one more thing, the audio version of my new book, Fear of Missing Out, Practical Decision-Making in a World of Overwhelming Choice, is out this week, November 17th. I actually read the book myself. I went into the studio, COVID safe, we were all masked up, And I can tell you that it was a lot of fun, and I worked hard on it, and I promise, if you like the sound of this voice, then you're going to love the audiobook. But in all seriousness, I am very proud of it, and since all of you listeners are audio heads, I do really think you'd enjoy it. So check it out at Audible or wherever you get your audiobooks. And now, onto the interview. To get started, I wanted to know how somebody with a law degree ends up becoming one of the world's best-known experts on happiness. It's not a direct path. I love lawyers, but you know, they're looking for risk and downside, not necessarily focusing on happiness all the time. And so I asked Gretchen how she ended up leaving the treadmill for a far less conventional path.
1: Well, I went to law school uh, for for uh, very common reasons, but not very good reasons, which were things like, well, I'm good at research and writing, and I can always change my mind later, and this will keep my options open. And my dad really loves being a lawyer, so why not go? Um, so I went to law school, and then I, you it know, turned out it went really well. And so I just stayed on the law path as one thing led to another. Um, but one thing that's true about me is that Uh, Ever since I was very young, I will become very preoccupied with a subject and do a ton of research and note-taking on it, just as kind of a a thing I do for fun. And uh, at that point, one day I was out for my lunch hour walk, and I asked myself a kind of rhetorical question, which was, what am I interested in that everybody in the world is interested in? And I thought, well, power, money, fame, sex... And all of a sudden, I was just seized by this idea of power, money, fame, sex. I began doing just giant amounts of research and note-taking on it. And then finally, it occurred to me, like, this is the kind of thing a person would do to write a book. And then I thought, well, I could be the person to write that book. And I went out to a bookstore and got a book called something like How to Write and Sell Your Nonfiction Book Proposal, and then just started following the directions. And that is what became my first book, which was called Power, Many, Fame, Sex, A User's Guide.
0: Anybody who's left the standard path knows, making that decision to do something different, it's hard, right? Because you're changing your place in the world. You know, oftentimes the way people see you, validation from others. So how did you sort of overcome the fear of leaving the prescribed path?
1: Well, that's a great question. And I think for me, several things came together. One is that at a certain point, I thought, you know, I'd rather fail as a writer than succeed as a lawyer. And this is my shot. Like there was just a time in my life, my husband and I were were getting ready to move from Washington, D.C. back to New York, which is like, you know, one of the publishing capitals of the world. And I was in between jobs. And I thought, if I was ever going to have a time, this is the time. If I'm waiting for the universe to send me a message, this is the message. You know, this is the time for me to take my shot. And so I should do it. Um, And I will say also that um, I was really fortunate and that everybody in my life, was very supportive of me taking a big risk. And I think that I, that it's easy to say you should just like carve your own path, but I, at least I am very influenced by what the people in my life think. And I was very fortunate because here are my parents, like I had just like basically had the best legal credentials a person could have. And I'm like, and now I'm gonna start over from zero and I don't have a clip or a short story to my name. And they were like, that is great. Like you should give it a shot. And my husband was also switching from law into finance. And so he was also taking a big leap and there was a day where we had just, we were, you know, in our like our new York City apartment and we got our, our letters from the New York Bar Association asking us to pay up for our bar fees. And I said to my husband, Are we going to pay our bar fees? And he's like, No, we're not going to. Why would we pay our bar fees? We're done with that. And I thought, Oh my gosh, we're really doing this. We're really, we're really moving beyond the law. Now I find out you can always go back and like make it up if you want to. But at the time, it felt like this, this, this threshold, this decision of enormous consequence.
0: Yes. You make, you make that decision. You close one door, at least you thought at the time and you have nowhere to go, but the other direction. So you close down that path, you take the other one, you're decisive, which is something that we all like to talk about on the show. And you've gone on and write a bunch of books. And one of the books, the one I want to talk about today is called the four tendencies. And this is a book that asks How do people respond to inner expectations, like a New Year's resolution, and to outer expectations, like a work deadline? So uh, tell me about what inspired you to take on that really big topic.
1: Well, I got my first insight into this framework, but that became The Four Tendencies, because I was writing a book called Better Than Before about habit formation. And speaking of decisions, one of the things that puzzles people about themselves and other people is like... I'll, I will know perfectly well that I'm happier if I eat right or get enough sleep and I'll decide that I, okay, this is a real priority for me. And then I just don't do it. And why is it that even though I've decided and I completely committed to something, it just doesn't happen. And so to me, that seemed like a problem of habit formation. So I became very drawn to how people could form the habits that would make them happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative. And I started to notice patterns in in how people succeeded or failed to succeed. And the big moment came for me when uh, a friend said, you know, I know I'm happier when I exercise. And when I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. So I don't understand why I can't go running now. So you know, it's the same person, same behavior. At one time it was effortless and now she's struggling to do it. Why? And after like so much thinking and looking at patterns of behavior that it almost melted my brain, it took months of just like thinking all the time. I identify this pattern of behavior, which I call the four tendencies, which divides people into upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels, as you say, on how they respond to expectations. Because it turns out this is a very narrow aspect of your personality, but it's very significant because we can all decide to do something, but when do we actually follow through? Knowing a person's tendency uh, makes it a lot easier to set ourselves up for success.
0: And so you identify these four tendencies upholders, obligers, rebels, and questioners. So tell us a little bit about each one of them and kind of okay. I'd love to know sort of like, I know you have a quiz on your website, which I took, we'll talk about that in a bit, um, and I will reveal what I am. but uh, what what is the kind of the percentage split um, mm-hmm. among those?
1: Okay. Right. So upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. So they meet the work deadline, they keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what other people expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. So their motto is, discipline is my freedom. Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. They hate anything arbitrary, unjustified, irrational. They're always looking for reasons. So the fact is they make everything an inner expectation. If it meets their inner standard, they'll do it, no problem. If it fails their inner standard, they'll resist. So their motto is, I'll comply if you convince me why. Then there are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. So this explains my friend on the track team. When she had a team and a coach expecting her to show up, no problem. When she's just trying to go on her own, she struggles. So the key for obligers to remember is that if they want to meet an inner expectation, they need to create a form of outer accountability. If you want to read more, join a book group. If you want to exercise more... Take a class where the teacher will know if you don't come. Work out with a friend who'll be annoyed if you don't show up. There's a lot of ways to create outer accountability, but that's what obligers need. So obligers' motto is, you can count on me, and I'm counting on you to count on me. (laughs) And then there are rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. They can do anything they want to do, anything they choose to do. But if you ask or tell them to do something, they are very likely to resist. And typically, they don't like to tell themselves what to do. Like, they won't sign up for a 10 a.m. spin class on Saturday because they think, well, I don't know what I'm going to feel like doing on Saturday. And just the idea that someone's expecting me to show up is going to bug me. So, their motto is, you can't make me, and neither can I. And so, the biggest tendency for both men and women, the one that has the biggest number of people in it, is obliger. You either are an obliger or you have a many obligers in your life. It's a big tendency. Uh, After that is questioner. Um, The smallest tendency, though it's a conspicuous tendency, is rebel. And what was surprising to me is that my tendency, upholder tendency, is only slightly larger than rebel because um, uh, we're kind of the the two extreme personality types, uh, upholders and rebels. Um, and I remember, like, when I finally came up with this framework, I went running into my husband, who's a questioner, by the way, and I was like, you know what I figured out? I'm part of this kind of like extreme fringe personality type. And He was like, you think? Because he was not surprised.
0: So I took your quiz and I am definitely an obliger.
1: Okay. Oh, so you're in great company. That's the biggest tendency for both men and women.
0: Yeah. And I noticed it's so funny when I read it and, and I was reading through you sent a PDF of it. and. About it. And it's like, yes, I'm the guy who always puts other people's needs first. Like, I've, I never miss a deadline. I okay. always come through, you know, always mm-hmm. really good in school. And as an adult, I have done the kinds of things you talked about. So, when I wanted to get in better shape, I signed up for the New York City Marathon. When I wanted to meditate every day, I found an accountability partner. I will schedule meetings early in the morning to make sure I go to bed on time. So, I have created all this structure in my life. In order to make sure that I actually do the things that I need to do, because I know how bad I am at that.
1: Well, see, and I think that's a great example of how a lot of people kind of figure it out over time and experience like how to set things up um, so that things work for them. Um, you sort of start to see that you start to intuit the patterns for yourself or for other people. Um, and I should say if people want to take a, the quiz that you mentioned and like get a report that spits out the answer Most people kind of know what they are just from the very brief description But if you go to quiz.gretchenrubin.com, it's very short. It's very quick. It's like three million people have taken this quiz now So
0: yeah, it's fun. Check it out. I think it, it, I learned it something fun. from it queridos Now that right there was Portuguese and as you know, I love speaking foreign languages Now, tell me something, is this totally subconscious? Are we deciding to do these things or is this just something that's like, you know, your parents raised you a certain way, you were part of mm-hmm. a certain culture, it's just sort of an, a part of who you are, it's in your DNA?
1: I think it's hardwired. I mean, I'm a big believer in the genetic roots of personality and I think the tendencies is something that you bring into the world with you. I don't think it's a function of culture or upbringing or birth order or religion or, you know, people have said various things. I really think that this is just part of who you are. But of course, um, culture and time and experience is going to influence how it comes out. So if you're a questioner and you're in North Korea, you're probably going to learn to keep that shut down. Whereas if you're a questioner and you're in Silicon Valley, it could be one of your greatest assets. Um, and, and so I think um, it comes out in different way and people characterize it in different ways. Some people might say, Oh, look at me. I'm so, t- you know, I, I, I always am letting myself down. I make these promises to myself and I don't keep them. I keep saying I'm going to exercise and I don't like something's wrong with me. And somebody else is like, Hey, you think I got time to exercise? I give 110% to my client. Oh my gosh. I'm there for my client all the time, 24 seven. Cause that's the kind of person that I am. So of course I don't have time to exercise because I'm I'm so awesome. Well, these are both obligers, right? Because what they're saying is I'm meeting outer expectations, but that me- but I'm not meeting inner expectations. One person sort of sees it as a flaw. One person is like bragging about it, and so you can see people characterizing it differently or viewing it differently, um, or also people um, like you have figured out how to work around it, so they get all the strengths of their tendency, but they don't really experience the limitations. Whereas other people kind of haven't figured that out. And so they are much more hampered because uh, each tendency has its own weaknesses and limitations. And they kind of haven't figured out the workarounds. Um, and so sometimes they're more frustrated by their tendency than they need to be because um, they, don't, they don't really know the key to how to uh, work with their tendency instead of against it.
0: You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking that FOMO and obligership are very related because a part of the reason that I've always had, I mean, the FOMO is part of my personality is because it's like, I don't want to let other people down, so I have to be there. And so um, it it is pretty deep in the personality. Now, as I think about how this maps to like the professional path that a person takes, so you're, you know, you're an upholder, right? Mm -hmm. You went off, you did this very interesting path. People who are obligers could be really great client service, as you mentioned before. Is it uh, possible to say that, you know, if you identify yourself as a certain personality type, should you then go and do certain things professionally?
1: Well, I think that just about every profession, you bring so much to it that I think just about any profession could be done well by any of the tendencies. So if you say you're a journalist, a questioner would be a great journalist, but an upholder would be a great journalist, and an obliger would be a great journalist, and a rebel would be a great journalist. Um, So I don't think that it's sort of like, if you're this, you should be that. But I do think that if you think about the kind of environments in which you thrive, that might make you more or less inclined to certain kinds of environments. For instance, rebels tend to like spontaneity. They don't like to be controlled. They don't like people looking over their shoulder and micromanaging them. They like to have a lot of choice and a kind of a lot of variety. So it is the fact that a lot of rebels are attracted to things like sales because it's sort of like, look man, whatever rule you got to break to make that sale, that's like that's okay. Or they like to be entrepreneurs because they don't like people telling them what to do. Um weirdly a lot of rebels are attracted to areas of high regulation like the clergy, the police, the military and um, corporations with a lot of rules because that gives them some, that kind of gives them the energy of resistance. Um that's amazing. and so you could say, well, I would do well. But then I have a questioner friend who's an entrepreneur and she's like, I don't trust anybody else to do the research. Like people are constantly doing things just because other people tell them that's how they should do it. And I, you know, I want to figure those things out for myself. I don't have to listen to anybody else. So she brings a questioner spirit to it. So I think it's more about thinking about, well, given the kind of environment in which I thrive, is this a good environment for me? So for instance, I have an obliger and every time she interviews for a new job, she says to her, the person who's interviewing her, "I do well with a tough boss. Are you a tough boss who's very demanding? Because that's how I do my best work. Well, a rebel might not do well with a tough boss because a rebel wants doesn't wants the feels like you're not the boss of me. Whereas the obliger likes that feeling of a lot of pressure that like they rise to that. So it's it's about the fit between the kind of environment in which you thrive." Um, and the strengths and limitations more than kind of the substance of it. Because people will say to me things like, well, all rebels are creative. No, creativity has nothing to do with whether you're a rebel. You might be creative, but you might not be creative um, because those are kind of two separate tracks.
0: Now, if you're managing a team or if you're managing a house and you have kids and say you got one kid who's total rebel, one kid's an obliger, how can you as that sort of leader adapt your own style in order to sort of get the best out of those people
1: well you've brought up something that's comes up a lot with exactly that situation whether it's at home or it's at work like let's say someone's who rebel who resists every time you ask or tell them to do something and then you have an obliger who's inclined to say yes what happens it's not fair right? Because you start leaning more and more on the person who is pretty cooperative and doesn't make a big fuss and is reliable and comes through. And the rebel is just like, I'm not going to do that. Not right now. I mean, and so I think if you're the person who's in charge, you need to go out of your way to make sure that things are fair. Now you have to communicate differently to a rebel and to an obliger. They're very different tendencies. And one of the things that's very poignant to me in studying the four tendencies is how often as adults and children, you know, rebels are just very misunderstood. It's the tendency that's the most unlike the other three tendencies. And out of the best intentions and the deepest love sometimes, people do everything wrong in managing a rebel. And uh, they just, it's, it's terrible. So if you're, if you're the parent and you got one obliger child and one rebel child, you really need to think about how you're gonna communicate differently with those children so that it is fair, but that you're reaching them both and setting them both up for success. Because you're an obliger, I want to mention obliger rebellion. Uh, This is when obligers meet expectations and then suddenly they snap and they say, this I will not do. And it can be small and funny, like, I'm not going to answer your emails for two weeks. Or it can be huge, like, I'm going to divorce you. I'm quitting this job. Like, right now, I walked in today and I'm like, you know what? You're dead to me. I've had it. This is over. I'm quitting. Uh, I can end a 20-year friendship overnight. And obligers will say, I didn't decide to do this. Uh, I'm acting out of character. This came out of the blue. I exploded. Um, And it happens when obligers feel like external pressure has become so overwhelming and onerous that they can't deal with it anymore. And so with Obliger Rebellion, it explodes the situation. And sometimes it's very beneficial, but sometimes it can be destructive. So you want to be aware of Obliger Rebellion as, um, you know, watching out for those that building sense of anger and resentment that can lead to an explosion.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I've been there. And so for the obligers listening who don't want to get to that place, what can they do to make sure that they don't get to the point of obliger rebellion?
1: Well, it's hard because there is this pressure on obligers to meet outer accountability. And so what what, there's a lot of things that you can do. One is, um, let's say you're in a work situation Maybe you and other obligers can say, like, let's look out for each other. Like, I don't feel that comfortable going into the boss and saying, "Look, I'm on ten committees, and everybody else is on three committees." But you could stand up for me, and I could stand up for you because you, because I feel I feel the duty to stand up for you, even if I would feel reluctant to do it for myself. Also, obligers can remind themselves: often you have to say no to someone, and so to really articulate in your mind the balance. So, let's say that I have a team that really wants me to work late. But I've had a conversation with my family and my family's like, we're really committed to having dinner together every night. And so I would say to I have to say no to somebody. I have to say no to my team or I have to say no to my family. So now it's my value. Who do I choose to say no to? Because I'm stuck. I have to say no to someone. So often for an obliger, realizing that to say yes to someone, I have to say no to someone else allows them to do it and then sometimes they can reframe something um to show how someone else could benefit for example i was talking to a very a very kind of celebrated professor who was constantly being asked to speak and he felt very deeply committed to his subject as is true most professors he thought that what he was talking about was super important and the world really needed to know everything he had to say so he felt a lot of pressure to like take to do all these things and then it occurred to him look I'm at the top of my game. These don't matter to me, but to somebody who's just starting out, these kinds of opportunities could be a real career game changer for them. So let me say no so that someone else has the opportunity to say yes and have these opportunities. Um, And then there's things where you can say things like, I need to keep myself in top shape. Like, if I don't take care of my my physical self, I'm not going to be there for my grandchildren. If I don't like get the, you know, take care of my health, I'm going to let others down. Um, I'm an upholder. And so it used to bother me when people would say like in the, in the field of happiness, well, I realized I needed to take care of myself in order to take care of others. And I'd be, as an upholder, I'm like, who cares about the others? Take care of yourself because you need to take care of yourself. Do something because you want to do it. But I realized that for obligers, this is actually a very helpful way to frame things because it does help them feel that sense of outer accountability that allows them to follow through for themselves.
0: All right, upholders. There you go. And the thing about this that I loved when I read this is that this is the kind of thing that once you know the concept, you will spot it. You'll be doing things like in three weeks, I'll be agreeing to things that I don't really want to do. And I will say no. And so you're going to save me a lot of time, Gretchen. Thank you for that. That's
1: good. Well, you know, one of the things some obligers can use this, not all these, because it's a pretty imaginary form of outer accountability, but they think of the duty to their future self. So it's like, well, Patrick right now feels like he should say yes, but future Patrick is going to be extremely annoyed because um, he's overcommitted. So I have to say now, now, because I need to think about future Patrick. So some of are able to think of their future selves as almost kind of a separate being that they need to please and take care of.
0: It makes sense because I'm often very angry at Patrick two weeks ago for agreeing to do things. So. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give that a try. Now, now, Gretchen, you, uh, you think deeply about happiness and how we can live better lives. And we were in the middle of something and I know you've been talking about the pandemic and, mm-hmm. and so I, I just love to close by having you offer us some words of optimism because I think you know, looking at the news, there's not a lot of it out there. So what are you feeling optimistic about right now?
1: You know, this is a huge experiment that we're all participating in. And we would not have chosen this experiment, and there are many terrible, terrible things about this experiment. But we're also learning a lot. And I think that we're gonna come out of this with a lot of uh, things to fix and problems to solve, but I think we're also gonna have a lot of information that we didn't have. And you look at certain areas, like I know a lot of people who work in the health profession, and many of them are thrilled. They're like, this is like a 10-year acceleration in being able to use um telemedicine and this is this is could be a game changer for us um or people understanding like maybe we don't need to travel so much we can save money for our company we can save wear and tear on individuals we can save wear and tear on the environment Because it turns out we can do a lot of this stuff by Zoom. So I think a lot of people are looking for what are the silver linings? What are we learning that we can... Even things like how does the cognitive development of teenagers change when they can stay up later and sleep later, which is more in keeping with like their natural uh, circadian rhythms. I'm like, I bet somebody's studying that, and it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. So I don't want to minimize or dismiss um, the severity and the terrible consequences of what we're going through, but I do think that, um, that we will learn important lessons. And, um, so I think for all of us, it's to sort of see like, well, what, what's working and how can I take that board? Like a lot of people I know are like, Ooh, I'm eating so healthfully because I have more time to cook. How am I going to keep that up when I'm commuting again? Well, that's a really good question, but now, you know, you can cook and you know, you feel better and you can eat more healthfully when you cook. So maybe in the future, you'll, you'll approach that decision in a different way because now you have more information. So
0: the book is called The Four Tendencies. and You can actually take a quiz to see which of the tendencies you have over at GretchenRubin.com. Gretchen, thanks a lot for being here.
1: Thank you. Fun to talk to you.
0: Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you gotta do the math and save money. Good news: by popular demand, Netsuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to netsuite.com/fomo. That's netsuite.com/fomo. Netsuite.com/fomo. Fomo. Big news. We now have a brand new website. So head over to FOMOSapiens.com where you can listen to past episodes, learn more about the show and find out how to advertise. Also head over to Spotify where you can find and follow playlists of the best of the show. You can also connect with me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis on Twitter at PJ McGinnis and on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. So don't be shy. FOMOSapiens is recorded in New York City.